Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, David French, and the new and improved Kevin Williamson. We are going to run through the three states that this may all come down to for control of the Senate, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. This is going to be a pretty midterm focused podcast. If we have some time at the end, though, we will definitely catch up on Ukraine. state do you think is most interesting right now? I thought we did not worth your time at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm always looking for uh, for bright spots here, and I found one actually in Pennsylvania, which is that apparently both Fetterman and Oz in their polling have found that they are low enthusiasm candidates, that their voters are going to vote for them, but they're not really very excited to vote for them. And that's the best news I've really heard all election because I'm anti-enthusiasm in politics. I'm, I'm anti-excitement. I'm certainly anti-enthusiasm when it comes to these two uh, yokels. So that is um, that is a good one. But in terms of the races that are actually pretty interesting, I think probably, I think Nevada is an interesting state. It's got interesting, weird politics. And um, so, you know, Pennsylvania is... Um, very much a race of our time, I think. Uh, Georgia is always kind of Georgia, but I think that the Nevada race is actually sort of sort of interesting in its way. Steve, why do you think it's coming down to these three states? Uh, and certainly, that's not to say that we couldn't have some surprises along the way. Or, for instance, Republicans could win all three of these states and that actually on the day after the midterms, we're going to be talking about Washington or something if this really is a huge wave election. But in terms of just who controls the Senate, if that is a close call, it looks like it'll be moving in, frankly, two states that were generally presumed to be a, uh, a light, if not darker shade of blue, and then one state that was presumed to be a pretty dark shade of red. These aren't the swing states that your mama grew up with. I mean, these, aren't, <laughs> these are not the swing states that we would have thought they might be 10, 12 years ago, right? Uh, for exactly the reasons you suggest. I mean, I think... Uh, there are different dynamics at play um, in each of these states against this backdrop of this the, this tremendously favorable issue environment for Republicans. You look at the right track, wrong track numbers, which pollsters use to, to determine um, how the electorate feels about how things are going. And depending on your poll, it's, you know, 2764. People think the country is heading in the wrong direction setting in the wrong direction under Democrat control and Democrats appear poised to be punished for that. So in a sense, it's, it's not surprising that in those two blue states, or those two light blue or bluish states, Republicans would be overperforming. It is sort of surprising that in that context, Georgia's as close as it is. Uh, I think you have to have a pretty awful Republican candidate for Georgia to be as close as it is. And I think if there were a more traditional standard Republican who would appeal to people beyond the sort of Trumpy uh, runt base of the Republican Party, you'd likely see a Republican candidate in Georgia uh, winning and winning by a, a pretty good margin. I don't think these things would be that close. I, I think if you look at the dynamics in the individual states, as Kevin said, you know, Pennsylvania is kind of what we deserve at this moment, right? Um, caricature candidates in some respects um, who are where, where the election, I think, is playing out in some ways, not as not as we would have expected, because I don't think, you know, at the beginning of the contest, people wouldn't have predicted the the, the stroke that Fetterman had. But it's it, these are this is a base election. People are reverting to their sort of their their natural tendencies and and we're likely to see a, a relatively close outcome there i think in nevada the the story is a little bit different uh, i talked to some people who are uh, have been involved in the nevada race recently both on the republican side and the democratic side and um their criticism of senator cortez mastio is that she has uh not done the kinds of things that you need to do 
over the course of her term to keep in touch with her constituents and in particular the Democratic core groups. Um, she's not been sort of a constant presence at town halls. She's not done the kinds of, uh, of, of regular schedule of meetings that you'd expect from somebody who's ambitious and wants to continue to, to grow. She ran the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee a couple years ago, um, and people say that she was focused more on national politics and her national profile than she was on uh, doing what she is at home, and she may be paying for that right now. That's why that race is as close as it is. Each of those races, by the way, according to the Real Clear Politics average, within a point. Um, so these are sort of the three tightest, I think. One thing about Nevada, if you don't mind my interrupting for just a second, that I think is worth pointing out, is that it's a, it's a tough one for the Democrats this time of year because it's um, it's a state where the Democrats are very heavily reliant on a private sector labor union. And unlike in California, where the labor unions that are powerful are all public sector, in Nevada, the, the, the big powerful labor union is in the tourism business, and it is very, very vulnerable to economic swings. And uh, so they're going to be a lot less excited about going to, to bat for Democrats this year than, say, your public sector unions in the rest of the country will be. David, keeping this philosophical for a second, you wrote a whole book about the sorting mechanisms of Americans. and. What if Steve is wrong? What if, in fact, Pennsylvania is not a close election in the end? And that while I know we're not going to have a sort of 1984 Mondale situation happening in Pennsylvania, um, but what if that debate actually really moved numbers and you have a substantial uh, split ticket vote in a state like Pennsylvania, in states like Georgia, and New Hampshire, where voters are willing to say, um, yep, I'm voting for the Republican Chris Sununu for governor, and I'm voting for the Democrat Maggie Hassan for Senate. How does that fit into your your book, your thesis, the sorting? Well, I think you have to look at how extreme things have to get before we start talking about substantial split-ticket voting. So if you're looking at Georgia, for example, what does it take to have substantial split ticket voting in Georgia? It takes, okay, you have Brian Kemp on one side, a capable, conventional Republican governor incumbent, on the other side. Very important. Yes, incumbent. Part of this. And then what, what causes split ticketing here? Huh, let's see. Wild conspiracy theories, evidence of possible um, impairment as a result of a career football, um, threatening. Uh, allegations, you threaten your wife with a gun, your ex-wife with a gun. Um, now, two allegations of either uh, trying to to pay for or drive a woman to an abortion clinic. I mean, it's taking a lot, and a lot of the smart money is still saying he's going to win. So, and the other thing with Fetterman, I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, if, after we watched that debate... I, you know, as somebody said, that might have been the worst debate performance in a major debate in modern American political history. And yet, and yet, no one is actually counting him out. I was just about to uncork my uh, lawyer theory of partisanship, which is being proven in the Herschel Walker Fetterman case just abundantly, that if you are a core partisan, there is, you're just a lawyer for your side. And that means you never abandon your client. And what you're going to do is you're going to always enhance the flaws of your opponent and diminish the flaws of your candidate under all circumstances, even if your candidate's flaws that you're diminishing are then in many ways the same flaws that you're enhancing in another candidate like Herschel Walker. I mean, you've got two guys here who they don't seem to be quite right. And is that isn't in, in, in normal logic that would be relevant in both races. But no, Sarah, it's ableist in one race, just pointed out, and absolutely salient in the other race, depending on who you are. So I think one of the, the, the sad realities is that it takes extreme candidate failure to start to even talk about substantial ticket splitting. That's where that's where we are right now. So let's talk about that debate a little bit more, Kevin. And before we jump into it, I just think it's worth noting that, at least for me, when I watched that debate, um, 
you know, you immediately feel for the Fetterman family and Fetterman's children and how hard this must be for them as a family. And while this podcast is about politics and the political strategy and the campaign operatives and the, you know, national political moment around this, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that that there is a family trying to get through a, a major catastrophic medical event with their dad. And that was tough. Okay. That being said, I went into that debate believing based on, for instance, the Dasha Burns NBC interview with John Fetterman, that this was an auditory processing problem in the sense that, yep, when you talk, he's not quite hearing you and that's why he needs to read it. And that in terms of speaking, he's going to stumble over some words just because you know, sometimes your brain sending the message to your mouth doesn't always work perfectly. It doesn't for all of us, but after a stroke, that's going to be just that much harder. Watching that debate, um, I left not being convinced that that was the extent of the issue. So you had both a potential cognitive impairment problem that was at least unclear, and that also the answers themselves just weren't there. I, yeah. I don't know how else to say it. Like there weren't really answers. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the thing you mentioned at the beginning that keep in mind, this is about people and, and families at, at the end of the day, you know, you know, you know, politicians better than I do because you've, you, you work with them more closely than I have, but I've known a lot of politicians and there's something wrong with all of them. Yeah. Um, totally. there's, there's something just sort of psychologically wrong with people who succeed in politics. I have often said you, you, with noted exceptions, you kind of have to be a sociopath to run for president. What I really think is they have the personality of addicts, but without usually without the addiction. Um, some of them also have uh, addictions. That's a, that's another story. Um, and and Fetterman seems to be unfortunately one of these these addict types who um, obviously should have stepped out of the race. Um, he can't do the job. I mean, part of me like you know wants to wants to joke. I mean, the guy you know the guy prefers reading to talking. I want to make him president. That's fine. That's 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 great. But um, in in reality, you know, he is he is badly sidelined by this pretty obviously, and um, shouldn't be running for office at all. He should be recuperating and receiving medical care and and resting. This is not something he should be doing. Um, because we live in this moment where we've convinced ourselves that every election is an apocalyptic confrontation between good and evil, he probably feels compelled to go out there because he thinks that, you know, if it comes down to control of the Senate between him and Dr. Oz, then this is, you know, whether America survives or not or whatever nonsense uh, we're telling ourselves this cycle, um, and maybe he really feels like he should be out there doing it. But it's clear that he is not doing himself any, fav himself any favors. He's probably not doing the country any favor. And um, and to be really, really cynical about this one, if I were the Democrats, this would be the election I want to lose because the economy is bad and they're getting blamed for it. But it's in a position where it's likely to get much, much worse before it gets better. Um, you know, we're in a in a very bad position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, debt and interest rates and uh, consumer debt on top of um, on top of public debt. And I won't go into the whole economic chicken little spiel right now you can you can read it on the dispatch but um it's um you know if you're looking at two years from now an economy that is a lot worse than it is today it's going to be a lot worse for the democrats if they win and keep control than if they had lost um people won't necessarily blame the republicans for it but they'll sort of share the blame because they'll have been there for a while and um but this is a matter of you know kind of decency and, and and trying to do what's right for um, your family and for and for the country. I just don't think Fetterman belongs in the race at all. And I'm not sure he belonged in the race in the first place. He's a pretty lightly qualified guy. I don't know. I got to tell you, I went back and watched some interviews that he was giving as lieutenant governor uh, when he was sort of early on in that tenure. He did a 60-minute sit-down with Jane Pauley. He's compelling, it was maybe a little too much on the legal weed for me as an emphasis, <laughs> but like yeah. he's clearly a good candidate. Also, his shorts were kind of short, and there was a lot of man spreading, and there was a lot of upper <laughs> thigh for sixty minutes. Frankly, I think he's he's pretty good at the working class cosplaying thing. If you don't have yeah. that background and see him as the phony that he is, you know, it's fascinating in the debate. I I taught this to my class at George Washington. Um, 
you know, Oz obviously shows up, suit, tie, the whole thing's very put together, the hair's perfect, he's wearing plenty of makeup. There's things that the Fetterman campaign just didn't do. His top button wasn't buttoned, so that it was like very messy and sloppy at the top. The tie was a little bit crooked. The suit didn't quite fit right and was rumpled. He wasn't wearing enough makeup, so he was super shiny on camera. Just, again, those are actually things that aren't necessarily the candidate, actually. That's like weird staff work. Yeah, I understand running for office like as a political Kevin Williamson impersonator, but like as an actual <laughs> aesthetic Kevin Williamson impersonator, that's maybe uh, in terms of fashion choices and such, maybe not exactly the right way to go if you actually want to uh, to win the race. I was just going to say one thing. How early was it apparent that this stroke was really serious? Because he had the stroke four days before, what, four days before the primary? Yes. Yeah. Isn't it apparent pretty quickly that a stroke is serious? Um, and I mean, yes so and no, I just don't think you know how quickly you're going to recover. Your doctors say right. you could recover very quickly and you're not going to know that you're not going to recover maybe completely or quickly enough. That's going to take some months, but Steve, this is actually part of my question to you because there's two other groups that are implicated in this race. And that's one national Democrats that had to make the call very shortly after the stroke whether to push behind the scenes for him to withdraw so that they could have another candidate um, on the ballot in time. Clearly, that wasn't done. Uh, They either feel like they were misled or that maybe they made the wrong decision or maybe they don't. And then the other group I want to talk about are the reporters who've been covering the race and had been writing, tweeting that, Fetterman, you know, had some auditory processing issues, stumbled over some words sometimes, but seemed fine to them. Absolutely no cognitive impairment. And what effect that's going to have, frankly, on both groups. Yeah, I mean, well, let me start with the the, the latter. I think this is a blow to journalists. I think for a, an industry that is having serious difficulty with credibility, this will hurt. We have heard again and again and again, mostly from, from partisan journalists or opinion types, but also, I think, sometimes by what they're not saying from mainstream reporters covering the race. Um, A little over a month ago, I think it was, uh, NBC News' Dasha Burns, the reporter, did the first sit-down interview with Fetterman uh, in a long time. And she provided, NBC provided him with a screen where he could see, he could read the words as she was asking the questions. And uh, I thought in the interview itself, he seemed halting and he really seemed to struggle, although not nearly on the level that he did on the debate stage. But when she reported this, she did an interview with Lester Holt uh, on on, uh, NBC Nightly News and said that in their small talk before they started recording, Fetterman really seemed to struggle, really seemed to struggle uh, with his words and finding his place and sort of understanding what was going on. And immediately she was savaged by reporters and commentators, uh, again, many of them Democrat aligned, her own uh, NBC colleague, Stephanie Rule, teed off on her saying, you know, Fetterman is, Fetterman's great. Uh, Kara Swisher from Vox said, sorry to say, but I talked to John Fetterman for over an hour without stop or any aids. And this is just nonsense. Maybe this reporter is just bad at small talk. You had a series of these kinds of criticisms of this NBC reporter who reported what she saw. She was the one in the room. And she said, look, this doesn't seem, he, he seems to really be struggling more than people understand. And it turns out she was totally vindicated by his performance in the debate. And I think the people who had covered for him to this point by attacking her uh, really looked bad in retrospect. But it was also the case. I mean, this this is also, you know, an interesting comment on the, the changing nature of the way that we're campaigning, the way the candidates are campaigning. It would have been just 10, 12, you know, 14 years ago the Fetterman would have been out on the stump, would have been pressured to be out on the stump doing public appearances at a rate far greater than he has been. He's been doing some appearances. He's been making some comments. They've been short. 
uh, pretty well controlled. It's been hard in some cases for reporters to even find out where his public appearances are going to be. They haven't gotten the coverage that they might have otherwise gotten. But if, if you're covering this race and a theme of your campaign reporting has not been the extent to which Fetterman has been struggling. Either the campaign successfully hid this from reporters or reporters successfully hid this from their readers and viewers, but either way, the public was ill-served by this. I think we need all of you to take a second and recover from the revelation that Kara Swisher might not be entirely reliable. (laughs) Well, and, and think about the, the dynamic here which is, we see this all the time, if you have a reporter who reports something tough, and especially a Democrat who might be sort of a favored, a darling of the left, and the absolute Twitter pile-on that occurs on that person, just the swarming. And, and, you know, people are human beings. It has to impact how people report. It has to impact, if they're thinking... If I say what I actually saw, my next four or five days are going to be hell. People are going to call for me to be fired. Senior colleagues are even going to attack me online. All of this has to operate as a deterrent effect. It has to. I also, I mean, maybe not that large, but if you know that something's going to get a lot of scrutiny, you spend a lot more time on phrasing that section, on making sure it's exactly what you mean. And that's a good thing, except that you're not doing the same thing for all candidates and all campaigns and all sentences. And that that's where some of that sort of unconscious bias comes in. It's similar to agenda setting. It doesn't mean that that's not worth writing a story on. But the fact is, who's setting the agenda, then is how some of that bias creeps in. And yeah, if you know that Whatever you write about Fetterman's health is going to get an enormous amount of attention from your peers. You're just going to be that much more careful, thoughtful, tender. I was going to say, we should go ahead and and, and appreciate that she actually said what she saw, though. Mm -hmm. Um, I can can think of probably a half a dozen, you know, sort of right-leaning media outlets that if they had had the Herschel Walker second abortion claim story, would not have published it. Right. I would have said a word about it. They would have put great effort into, you know, trying to make sure the news didn't get out. No, to be clear, I'm saying Dasha Burns is the the good guy here. It's everyone after they see what happens to Dasha is like, well, maybe I'll say what I thought, but like, oh, I'm going to really focus on that sentence. Think of Tucker and Kanye. Tucker and Kanye. He had the anti-Semitic segments that he left on the cutting room floor and never were going to see in the light of day until they were leaked. Yeah, as, as if that's not the real story. (laughs) <laughs> from the Tucker Kanye, Tucker Kanye interview. No, look, and I, I think, you know, a lot has to do, to a certain extent, we're still seeing this. I mean, what was interesting to me is that Fetterman was exposed for struggling the way that he was struggling. And let's, let's stipulate, it's possible, in fairness to, to Fetterman, that what we saw in the debate stage was a particularly bad night. Maybe he's not that bad all the time. Maybe it was mm-hmm. a, a maybe. Maybe the the pressure. I think there's a lot of reasons to think that. By the way, that yeah. a one on one interview with a reporter would be easier, less stressful. He would choose the time of day, and uh, the Dasha Burns interview was, for instance, in his uh, house, the same place that the sixty Minutes interview was in. Oddly enough, same room actually. Um, and so there's a lot of reason to think that those reporters were seeing a less affected John Fetterman than what we saw on the debate stage. So let's leave open the possibility that that that's true. I think you can see from, again, her, her interview, if you actually watch the interview, he was really struggling. It wasn't as bad as the debate performance, but he was not f- fluent. He struggled over his words. He didn't understand, I think. It seemed... To to, to, to indicate that he didn't understand the meaning behind some of the questions. But what's been interesting is that in the days since the debate, I mean, the debate should have been this moment of clarity for everybody, every sentient being. Anybody who paid even passing attention to the debate, it sh- should require us to grapple with some of these things. And instead, you're getting sort of two different lines of, of argument. One is from Democrats and, and, and partisans. It's ridiculous for Republicans and critics of Fetterman to be focused on this. He wasn't really that bad. And the other is, you know, this, we shouldn't be critical of how bad he was because this is a disability. 
and people deserve sort of the benefit of the doubt if they've got either this disability or others. New York Times has a has a a, a story up today about um, h- how uh, the disabled community is reacting to this, and obviously it's a very sympathetic story for for people who are disabled who watched him on the stage and are frustrated that he's been criticized for struggling the way that he struggled. But it seems to me that you sort of can't have it both ways. Um, and this isn't the same person necessarily trying to find either excuses or context that makes, makes the story more favorable for Fetterman. Um, but it's, it's been interesting to watch the reaction after that rather disastrous debate. Hey, we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million they can help you whether it's business or personal taxes even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch two things on this though one uh, it is still a binary choice yes there's a third-party candidate but binary in the sense that i think a lot of democrats say i get it but frankly, the alternative is Oz, and we find that unacceptable. And then Oz has that moment in the debate where he now famously says that the decision to have an abortion should be left up to a woman, a doctor, and local political leaders. You know, in a different debate format, I'm not sure that line would go over so well. I'm being sarcastic, listeners. <laughs> um, David, what did you think of that abortion answer as our pro life representative? Um, I mean, if you're trying to craft in a lab the least persuasive pro-life answer <laughs> you can possibly craft, that would be the one that wins the focus grouping uh, hands down. I mean, that is between a woman or doctor and her local political leaders conjures up a vision of a woman, a doctor, and then like the local state rep like walking in. Unbelie- it's strange because watching it, I mean, you know he prepared for that question. It looks I, like that. I love that you said that in a, in a state where you know the the political leaders have been people like you know Arlen Specter and Rick Santorum and people who whatever you feel about abortion you probably just wouldn't want to like have a real intimate consultation with. No, no. Well, and with my foot in the stirrups, I would really like Rick Santorum nowhere near the room. And this is what happens when you have candidates who probably uh, I don't know can't look inside his heart. Are they pro life? Are they lifelong pro lifers by conviction? Or are they sort of throwing on the pro-life clothes and hurrying on out to the debate stage? And and think about this. You know, I was just thinking about this before the podcast, that we have now gone from uh, the world's greatest deliberative body to it's just, we're just electing a vote bot 9,000. Why do we care if they're decent, honorable, even functional people and sort of capable of doing a white collar professional job, why we don't care about that anymore. It's just it's all about the vote. It's all about who's going to be uh, uh, selecting the majority leader. That's it. That's it. No, no more world's greatest deliberative body. That's old old news. But yeah, the the Oz answer. This is what happens. You know, it reminded me of of Trump, who threw on the pro life clothes in twenty sixteen at first talking about the really good things Planned Parenthood does and then circling full, going full circle towards, yeah, we got to punish women, which is what happens when you're just throwing on the pro-life clothes. Kevin, I have a real question for you. Thank goodness. (laughs) There was part of the debate that I did not understand. And I'm I'm wondering whether you understood it. It's around this abortion question. He gets asked, yes or no, would you vote for the Lindsey Graham 15-week ban? This is a question to Oz, of course. And Oz says, I'm going to give you a better answer. I wouldn't vote for any federal legislation that restricts a state's ability to regulate abortion. And then he goes on about that and why that's important. 
And then she says, okay, just to follow up, would you vote for the Lindsey Graham 15-week abortion bill? He says, like I said, I wouldn't vote for any federal legislation on abortion. It goes on again. And she's like, okay, I'm just going to try one more time. Yes or no? So you wouldn't vote for the Lindsey Graham 15-week abortion ban. And he says, I think I've already answered your question. Yeah. Why would you not just say no? If your answer is no, I can't. It sounds like his answer is no, but then it's not no. They asked Laxalt out in Nevada the same question, and he was pretty forthright about it. He said, no, I won't vote for the abortion ban um, for the Lindsey Graham bill. So um, I suspect that um, Oz just isn't very good at this stuff. You know, uh, when you think about it, you know, I don't think Dr. Oz is qualified to be on the cast of Hee Haw, much less <laughs> to be in the Senate. And um, like most people who are professional performers, um, he doesn't do real well when he doesn't have either lines written for him or adequate presentation or preparation, rather. And it just seems like he wasn't really adequately prepared to answer the question. So um, it seems like the way to answer it, if you, if you want to make the point that he was making, saying, no, I wouldn't vote for it because I'm not voting for any federal abortion legislation because I think that the whole point of Dobbs is this goes to the states. And in fact, I think a lot of Republicans have sort of missed a real rhetorical opportunity there um, because, you know, we're having these fights in places like Texas about whether we're going to stick with what the trigger law uh, put in in terms of abortion restrictions or whether we're going to do something more like a 12 or a 15 week uh, ban or something like that. And as people get ready to have these fights, which are going to be some bitter fights on the Republican side, but somebody really ought to stand up and say, all this shows that Dobbs worked, that it did the thing it was supposed to do. We said we're going to return the fight to the states, and now the states are having the fights. Great. Um, God bless America. That's how things are supposed to be. Let's do more of this. Um, but instead, you know, you've got Oz sort of chasing his tail and trying to figure out um, how to not say something that he actually kind of wants to say. And I'd say this is the other real, real benefit to Republicans of the the, the Fetterman struggles, right? Mm-hmm. I thought Oz came off as um, very unlikable, not terribly knowledgeable. The, the example that you just gave where he sort of ran around in circles on the abortion answer was like, I thought, like the answer he gave on immigration, like the answer he gave on guns. <laughs> lots of talking in circles, lots of words, not lots of meaning. And that he's getting virtually no scrutiny on his poor answers. I think, you know, had he been debating, you know, even a sort of mediocre uh, candidate on the other side who didn't call attention. I mean, I think the the debate for me was watching to see just how much Fetterman was struggling and to see if he could, you're cheering for him. I mean, I'm not a Fetterman supporter, but I want the guy to give us a coherent answer. Can you answer yeah. this question? You, you, on a human level, you're cheering for that. Um, and he could and again and again and again. Yeah. We've had two presidents in a row who talk like stroke victims. Can we cut some slack to the actual stroke victim? Yeah. I mean, he, he, he was, he was struggling so badly that that just distracted from everything, but then it would, you'd go to Oz and you'd see his answers and they were, sort of incoherent in a different way. And yeah. I think if you were debating somebody who, you know, was, was average, um, it would have been a, a much different story coming out of that debate. Let's not forget two months ago, this was a D plus nine race. Fetterman was up nearly double digits heading into Labor Day. And then he had to start doing campaign events and he was doing these interviews. And I think, you know, you're sitting in that, campaign war room around Labor Day deciding, all right, what are some of these big decisions we're going to have to make? Their choice was, you know, between one debate, multiple debates, no debates, and when to have those debates. And I think we're seeing that they probably picked wrong on both fronts. They would have been better off if you're going to do a debate, do it earlier on. There would have been more time to then rehabilitate that debate performance, do more interviews to show that actually one-on-one in interviews, he's doing much, much better. Instead, you did the opposite order and it didn't work very well. Uh, And two, obviously, I think looking back, agreeing to debate was a huge mistake for the Fetterman campaign. They were far better off taking the one or two point hit from not doing any events, not doing debates, not doing interviews potentially that that would have caused, you know, it's the old Ben Franklin quote, you know, better to have them assume 
then remove, uh, open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. that they removed all doubt. Yeah. Do you think that people are making political mistakes by doing too much of the old fashioned campaigning still? I think mean, Biden kind of showed that you can be elected president without really running much of a conventional campaign. Trump uh, didn't get reelected, but you know, he basically lived on Twitter and used that to kind of go over the heads of the traditional you know, media. And-, and he didn't do the retail events in 2016. You know, the big thing was he didn't show up to Iowa. His helicopter was there. Right. So why, why, why do the traditional stuff when it seems like there's ways to get around it? And especially if you're someone like Fetterman, who's going to suffer from it. Because the people running campaigns are my age and older who were raised in the traditional way. And so I just don't think they're willing to be the one who takes the big risk doing something the new way, then losing the race. And everyone blames you for, you know, Fetterman, if they didn't debate and Fetterman lost, they would blame the operatives for making that mistake. And so there's a risk aversion there when it's your career. But we are seeing shifts. I mean, as you said, Trump didn't do any retail at the state level, New Hampshire, Iowa, like you expected, still did incredibly well in those states, all things considered, certainly was able to make it through, unlike uh, the Giuliani strategy in 2008. He tried to skip those early states and it was a disaster. You know, that wasn't that far before 2016. Um, Biden had the advantage of COVID, right? There was a reason he wasn't going out. He was an elderly man who didn't want to get COVID, um, you know, there wasn't a vaccine for large chunks of that, et cetera, actually for all of it, um, until after the election, I guess. No, am I one year off? No, I'm right. No, you're right. Yeah. You're right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's Time right. flies yeah. when you're staying at home with a baby. Um, <laughs> uh, and then there was this fascinating piece in the New York Times, which Steve, you do this all the time, where you're like, oh man, I should have written that. Ugh. Um, where it writes about, the new communications directors for these campaigns and how, you know, I was raised in the old school, like you're a staffer, you're there to represent the views of your person, you're like working behind the scenes and you're trying to kill stories, shape stories, get surrogates into stories. And these guys are their own mini candidates. They're sort of like vice presidents almost. They're social media celebrities. They're out there making their own news with their own followers. Uh, Well, you know, they're like, um, <laughs> Jennifer Lopez, right? They're fly girls in the back, but they're awesome. They're not all girls, by the way. Uh, but you know, they're fly doing it. What is he fly? What does that even mean? Oh my God. You don't know what fly girls are. Uh, from in, oh, okay. in living color. It's one of the great comedic shows of the late 1980s. I mean, come yeah. on, Steve. Yeah. Anyway, so they become miniaturized candidates in their own right. That is a total departure. Uh, from what we've been seeing, but DeSantis has done it. Uh, you know, in Arizona, we're seeing it in Nevada to some extent. So I think there's a lot changing in campaigns. I just think we're in the middle of the change and that Fetterman's campaign clearly isn't quite in a new campaign mode. Mm-hmm. David, last word to you on the Fetterman Osrace, because I want to make sure we touch on some other stuff. Yeah, I... I just am struck at the way, just to circle all the way back to the, your opening question to me about partisanship, the way in which ferocious partisanship is elevating such incredible mediocrities. Because the, the, the reality is you just don't have to persuade that many people. You don't have to have that much talent to be able to elevate yourself to become a Senate candidate. I mean, well, uh, Herschel Walker had a lot of football talent and that's it. And he won by 55 points. Oz, he had the talent of getting the Trump endorsement. Uh, it, It is a remarkable, and then we have had, as Kevin said, you know, in 2020, we had two of the least impressive public figures running for president that I've seen in my lifetime with an incredible ferocity behind the race. And this is, I think, one of the more unanticipated, at least to me, developments of hyper-partisanship is the way in which it, it, uh, the way in which it enables staggering levels of mediocrity and shocking levels of corruption. Because if there's one thing you cannot do, it's abandon your corrupt mediocrity for the other side. (laughs) That's the one thing that cannot be done. David, you know where this country really missed an opportunity? We should go back in the, in, in the time machine. It's 2016, Donald Trump versus Hillary Rodham Clinton for mayor of New York. 
<laughs> that would have been a great choice. And either one of them would have been good at that job and left the president to see some grown up. And, you know, Trump actually, that job might have brought out the sort of better side of his character, whereas the presidency certainly brought out the, the, the absolute worst of it. Oh, Kevin, you find new and interesting <laughs> ways to make me sad. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve, let's talk Ukraine for a few minutes. We had the uh, Progressive Caucus <laughs> rescind a letter that sounded a whole lot like Kevin McCarthy's position. And and when they rescinded this letter, they retracted the letter that they put out. They effectively acknowledged that one of the reasons they were retracting the letter is because it sounded a whole lot like Kevin McCarthy's position. Yeah. Which is a pretty remarkable thing to say. Politics is a horseshoe, man. This is one of these stories that we talk to people on Capitol Hill, people who cover Capitol Hill. They will say that, you know, this is a particularly bad incident uh, or example of stuff that happens all the time. There these, these kinds of letters are drafted all the time. They're circulated among members of Congress and their staffs. There's backroom pressure to sign on to this letter, to not sign on to that letter. And then you get to a point where um, the letter is settled and, and approved and distributed. Well, in the case of this letter, apparently the original drafting took place like in June. And it, it sort of was rocketed around Capitol Hill for four months with revisions being added, revisions being taken off, and then suddenly released in the days after uh, in the days after Kevin McCarthy made this comment last week that republicans, if if Republicans become the majority, would not be uh, giving Ukraine what he called a blank check um, and hinted that the 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 funding could well be be cut. the the Progressive Caucus, the House Progressive Caucus, released this letter not only calling on President Biden to reevaluate his strategy on Ukraine, but also directly calling for uh, direct negotiations with Russia, with the aggressor in this case. Um, it was, a, a, I think, a, a bold call. And it turned out that in the hours after that letter was released, uh, they took a ton of grief for this. And even some of the people who had been signatories to the letter immediately put out statements uh, recasting uh, their, their support for the language in the letter or suggesting that the letter might have changed. Um, Prima Jayapal, who put out the letter, um, suggested or others suggested on her behalf that it was released by staff without final approval. Um, th those things can happen. Um, reason to be skeptical that they happened in this instance, but it was a, it, it was a bad moment for Democrats. Um, and certainly something that the white house has to be livid about. I mean, Joe Biden had gone out of his way to, uh, make nice with the congressional progressive caucus, including its leaders courting them assiduously. This is detailed in, uh, in Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns' book, This Will Not Pass. And this is the thanks that he gets for it. There was not, as I understand, any attempt to take this to the White House beforehand in any kind of a serious way. This was just a blindside shot at the president um, with pretty significant implications and pretty significant embarrassment. David? Oh, man. <laughs> How much time... Do you have? I know you okay. have feelings. I have thoughts and feelings on this. So it isn't, it, think of it like this. So it's not just the malpractice of the letter itself, which was largely incoherent, except on one point, directing negotiations with Russia, right? It's also the timing, which is right as the dirty bomb sort of threat or the dirty bomb calls are being made. Now, why is this significant? It's significant because right now the battlefield dynamic is this. It does not appear that Russia has, over the short to medium term, the ability to completely reverse the battlefield momentum so long as the United States continues to supply Ukraine with weapons. So 
If you can't break the Ukrainian line under current conditions, if you're Russia, what are you trying to do? You're trying to adjust the conditions. You're trying to hammer at the weak point of potential American aid. Because if American aid is removed, the disadvantage, the Ukrainian disadvantage becomes just staggering. So what does this do? This letter says to Vladimir Putin, ha, I've got about 30 Democrats, maybe. And then the Republicans, if they win the House, there was 57 Republicans who voted against Ukraine aid. That number may go up to 70, to 75, depending on who exactly wins. So you, you start to do your math if you're Vladimir Putin. 75 plus 30 means 100 and five right now. And you've got, you, then you're saying, hey, there's some possibility here to crack open this coalition. And the other thing is, remember, this is not necessarily, we're not necessarily anywhere close to the end game of this war. This war could go on for years. And so if Vladimir Putin is playing the long game, what did, what did the Progressive Caucus do? It just shattered the illusion of total Democratic Party unanimity on this, on this point. At the worst possible time, right when Vladimir Putin is trying to place pressure on the West through this dirty bomb these these dirty bomb allegations, which are transparently designed, if a dirty bomb ever went off, to provide the pretext for dramatic escalation. And so that the timing, it's hard to imagine worse timing for this. And then the cowardice of it all. I love the the J. Paul statement where she says, Staff did this and I take responsibility. <laughs> if you take responsibility, don't say staff did it, <laughs> but what a sorry, sorry, sorry spectacle. It was just incredible to see. Kevin, what does this look like with a Republican-controlled Congress? Let's say both House and Senate, Biden White House. How does our uh, stance toward Ukraine or Russia change? You know, one of the things that um, the sort of progressives and the uh, kind of libertarian paleo Ron Paul, Pat Buchanan Wright had in common for the longest time is that they weren't really serious about foreign policy, that all of their foreign policy views were basically laundered through domestic politics and attitudes about the military industrial complex and that sort of thing. And because it didn't come up, because neither group had very much power, um, they never had to deal with the fact that they had very similar foreign policy views. Uh, and very similar kinds of ways of applying those views. And now that you've got this, um, you know, kind of Ron Paul adjacent foreign policy view really ascendant in the Republican Party, um, the progressives are suddenly feeling the moral urge to abandon it because, you know, we can't have the same views as those guys because those guys have cooties. Therefore, the views have cooties. And even though we've had these same you know, similar, similar kinds of, you know, peacenik adjacent uh, foreign policy views for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, we can't have it now if Kevin McCarthy has it. And um, so this is, a, I think, a pretty good indicator that um, the left is still pretty unserious about this, but I think that there is an element on the right that is taking this up in a more serious and uh, in meaningful kind of way. I think that um, it's going to be a very, hmm, how to put it, I'm not surprised to see Republicans being irresponsible because I've been alive for the last 10 years and, and, and watched a great deal of Republican irresponsibility. But, you know, as Republicans sort of give up, well, we used to be the, the fiscally responsible people, sort of, at least we have some kind of rhetorical claim to it, some sort of defensible claim to being the more fiscally responsible people. They pretty well abandoned that. But for a long time, you know, from the 70s forward, I think the Republicans could really claim to be the party that had the more sophisticated and responsible foreign policy views and national security views. And I think that they are just sort of jettisoning that too. And um, I know that there are out there some people who um, don't care as much about, you know, abortion and issues like that as, as say David and I do, who still for, you know, kind of tribal reasons um, can't bring themselves to vote for, for Democrats. They're these kind of, you know, old Alex P. Keaton Republicans and whatnot. But if you have a Democratic Party that ends up having, by default, the more responsible views on foreign policy, by default, maybe even the more responsible views on fiscal affairs, um, at one point, I've never voted for a Democrat in my life. I don't expect to. But um, 
at one point you have to figure they become a more attractive option for some people who have not hitherto been attracted in that direction successfully. And there are a lot of people who care a lot about foreign policy the way some people care about the uh, so-called social issues. I haven't seen a hint that Democrats are going to be the party of fiscal responsibility, even by default. So tell me if you see that. Um, I, I would be I'll be stunned if if that happens, which is not to excuse Republicans. You're absolutely right that Republicans have. I mean, they, that's what that's what makes this so. To, uh, I think the Democratic openness to unpopular tax increases is um, probably a more responsible position than the Republican blanket hostility toward irresponsible or a hostility towards such increases and its enthusiasm for irresponsible continued tax cuts. Yeah, I, I guess I, I am sufficiently um, convinced that we give enough, the federal government enough money um, in taxes <laughs> that we shouldn't be raising more. We should be instead focusing on entitlement reform. Yeah, then, then that's, that's, a, that's a great line of argument until you get a you know, fiscal crisis on your hands like the ones we're headed into. But I agree with you. The question isn't so much, do I want cancer on my left lung or right lung? Right. Or you stop smoking. You know? Democrats, are, Democrats are not going to be suddenly for entitlement reform, which I think is the, the, the most urgent, pressing fiscal consideration. I mean, Republicans are not either. Like, well, that, I think that's, that's true. But this is, I mean, this, is, this, this underscores the, the departure, right? Because Republicans adopted that as a party, however reluctantly, just 10 years ago, and now they've totally and completely abandoned it. I, on the foreign policy question, I mean, there is a there is a, a, a development to make Kevin's point. Uh, Representative Paul Gosar, who is, should we say, sort of QAnon adjacent, uh, <laughs> white nationalist friendly, member of the House, um, invited, ju- just now invited uh, Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky to come to Arizona to negotiate a peace deal. Um, so he is of this this uh, ascendant um, Ron Paul esque non interventionist um, neo isolationist wing of the Republican Party. I, I have to say, I don't think it's as big as I don't think it's it's as large as you might believe it is, given the attention that it's getting lately. When you have Kevin McCarthy making the kind of comment that he made, um, there's a, there's a sort of an assumption that this is represented. You've got the potential speaker of the house making this kind of a declaration. This, this shows us just how, um, the party has changed and we, we may find out that that's true, but I think he's being led around by the nose by the house freedom caucus, um, having basically made a deal with House Freedom Caucus leadership that they will support him or at least not oppose him so long as he does what they want to do. And depending on who you you talk to on Capitol Hill, there's an actual deal. It's not just an unspoken deal. There's an actual deal and and has been for a while. But either way, Kevin McCarthy is, I think, articulating the views of the House Freedom Caucus. R. Haley Byrd reported uh, earlier this summer that this was the position of the House Freedom Caucus. And Several months later, you have Kevin McCarthy uh, saying it out loud. The uh, if you look at where Republican voters are, they are not where Kevin McCarthy and the House Freedom Caucus are, particularly on the question of Ukraine. I think broadly on foreign policy, Donald Trump made these. I mean, to the extent that you can um, charitably call uh, what what he did on foreign policy pronouncements arguments, he made these cases or these assertions for the better part of the last six or seven years. And the Republican Party, by and large, is still not where he is, which I think is interesting. I mean, they've adopted some of his skepticism. They've articulated some of his views. But if you look at the polling, the party itself still remains, uh, on, the, on the question of Ukraine, very strongly in favor of Ukraine and very strongly opposed to Vladimir Putin, recognizing sort of the moral bankruptcy of what Russia has done here. You know, but what worries me, Steve, is I think this is true. If the Republicans take the House... There is go- aid for Ukraine is going to be in more doubt than if the Democrats keep the House. I think that's just flat out. Yeah, true. I agree with that. And then the other thing is the momentum. The momentum seems to be with those who are casting doubt on aid for Ukraine. As I said, fifty-seven Republicans voted against aid the last time around. It'll be more the next time around, in all likelihood. And then the other factor here is that the re- the right wing infotainment world is very much on the side of. Uh, suspending aid or 
uh, at one extreme, suspending aid entirely, and another one, which is this sort of Heritage Foundation position of, we don't want to do a blank check, but we're not really willing to say what our current, we're not really willing to put forward a plan of our own and, and really push this through Congress that supports Ukraine on the terms where we want to support Ukraine. And so there's an enormous amount of infotainment momentum sure. against Ukraine. There's increased. I love that McCarthy has given us a literal example of I must follow them for I am their leader. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It won't be the it won't be the last time. No, David, your point is exactly right. And look, I mean, I think we can go further um, without the risk of of caricature, caricaturing some of these positions. I mean, I think some of the people in the in the right wing infotainment world are pro Russia. Remember, Tucker Carlson yes. declared on his show that he's on Russia's side. You have Tucker and others creating these f- fantasy conspiracy theories about uh, the Biden administration having blown up Nord Stream. I mean, things that are just without any evidence whatsoever and making pro-Russia arguments that can't really be characterized in any other way. So you're right. It, and And... That's where the trend is is heading. I just think it's uh, give give me just this little slice of optimism in our <laughs> current moment because because the Republican voters don't seem to be going along yet. Yes, and no, I'm going to hang true. on to that. <laughs> All right, next week is going to be our last podcast before the midterms, and if you are a member of the Dispatch. I want to make sure you hop into the comments after this episode and ask us whatever questions you want us to answer for that last pre-midterm podcast. Uh, Whatever's on your mind, probably about the midterms, but if you've got um, questions about Spanish wine, you know, feel free. It'll be kind of like a... Always welcome. Always welcome. (laughs) It'll be kind of like a podcast version of Dispatch Live for our not members, and we hope you'll like it and uh, consider becoming a member after that. And Sarah, should we mention, maybe you were going to, um, a week from today, the day that we're recording this. Is Chicago? We, we will be together. Yeah. With Declan. Yeah. In Chicago. Yeah. It's true. So if there are people in Chicago, I think we may be running out of space. So register quickly. We'll put the registration in the show notes. Uh, but there is a dispatch meetup in Chicago next Thursday, November 3rd. Uh, very, and we would love to see any of you there. I'm very members. confused why, as the weather gets colder, we're going to colder and colder places. Um, but okay. Builds fair character. <laughs> and uh, for a quick not worth your time, um, I feel like I'm being gaslit by my friends. So I think I've mentioned my mom pod before. There's a group of us who all gave birth Uh, the summer of COVID and you couldn't really see anyone or leave the house with your baby. So we all just kind of sat on our phones and we're like, is this normal? With pictures of poop for months. And um, two of these women have come out and told me, I mean, just admitted it openly, like they weren't embarrassed, that they not just like will eat candy corn. I mean, they actively seek it out. I went over to one of their houses recently and was offered candy corn. Like that wasn't an insult, a way to get someone to leave your house. And I I don't understand. And I guess I'm just curious. I, none of you like candy corn, right? That's not real. Candy okay. corn is great. Candy corn is great. Of course Steve likes candy corn. <laughs> it's oh great. And, and the better form of candy corn are those little pumpkins that are made of the same thing because there's more. You can get more in a handful. When you start off with, we were exchanging pictures of poop, and then they started to confess. I didn't know where the conversation was going. <laughs> I was worried. I was so worried. I've got to say candy corn at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, to go from pictures of poop to can- to something as glorious as candy corn. That's I just a want nice to explain, term. these are like real people in America who I've now known for years, and I was shocked. It was... It was a horrifying experience. David, back me up here. Like, you're eating Reese's. You're eating Snickers at this time of year. Kit Kats, sure. I have never, in to my memory, seen someone voluntarily consume candy corn. Thank you, David. Yeah. Thank you. What? It's not a real thing. They're decorative. No. no, <laughs> I no think, you... I, so this is true. I will, I will tell you this. I do not think, we've not yet purchased any... Halloween candy for distribution at the Hayes household yet. 
However, that Ford distribution is doing a lot of work about how much candy is in the house. Uh, no, there's always a possibility. I can't be I can't um, be too emphatic about it because it's always possible that the kids have like a stash that I don't know about. Um, but we have had candy corn on hand for you know sort of pleasant, joyous nibbling for the last month. I think that's what these because it's that's what these it's women great. were doing. They were yeah, doing pleasant, just, joyous nibbling, but of friends. candy corn, not yeah, of it's great. all the delicious options that are in the world. Oh. I have a very um, strangely complete memory of my early childhood. I can remember being in crib and such. And when I was very, very little, I thought that I didn't like cupcakes until someone explained to me that you have to unwrap them. And, <laughs> and I can still remember what chewing on that paper tastes like. Better than candy corn. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Okay, good, good. I frankly, if we were going to guess who the absolute psychopath was in this podcast, it would be Steve. So this is all fulfilling all the thoughts that I previously had. I'm glad. Uh, Again, if you're a member, hop into the comments section, ask your questions that we'll answer on next week's episode. If you're not a member, you should consider joining just for that. And we will see some of you, I hope, in Chicago, where I will be dressed as if it is mid-January because I hate the cold. Real quick, did anyone have any feelings on not worth your time? I was thinking maybe something Halloween-ish. Elon Musk buying Twitter, finally. That's classic. That's total. Like, I couldn't, I so don't care. You could just say we actually found something that was not worth our time, so we're not talking about it. (laughs)